0: Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, we are going to be looking at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 29. If you have uh, one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you, it's in the bottom um, slot right there in front of you, uh, you can turn to page 147 and it will carry over to page 148. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, we would love for that to be a free gift to you. That means you can take it without worrying about anybody tracking you down after the service, but we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Page 147, 148, and you can also follow along on the screen with me. Uh, Growing up, um, I kind of, kind of broke my own rule, honestly. Um, I just bragged on y'all. But growing up, my dad would tell me, son, no one likes a bragger. Uh, And I can remember a particular instance of this was when I showed up, and I think I was maybe in third grade. I think it was third grade, and my dad was teaching my Sunday school class, and I'd just gotten a brand new Bible, and it was a bonded leather Bible. It had my name on it. It had a, a note, a place, an area to keep your notes, and a pen, and a highlighter, and a cover, and I went into Sunday school, and I bragged about how much money my parents spent on the Bible, and my dad, who was the Sunday school teacher, kind of looked at me and gritted his teeth, and he was like, cut it out. Um, And so that kind of became one of those things where I just grew up being told no one likes a bragger. And it was true for uh, my dad. It's also true for God in the sense that he resists the proud, the arrogant, the self-confident. But he gives grace to the humble. And so one of the things that this passage is going to teach us this morning is we're going to see the Lord God caution us against pride and remind us that if we would boast, if we would brag, we should boast in what the Lord has done. Let our boast be in what he has done. And so if you have your Bibles, if you would stand with me out of respect for the reading of the word of God. We're going to read the entire chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, regarding this idea of let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord in what he has done. This is God's word to us. Hear Israel. You are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with larger cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, the Anakites. And you know about them and have heard about them. Who can stand against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And You will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord your God has promised. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to go in and take possession of this land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget How you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's anger so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, the Lord your God has made with you. I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God, and on them were all the commandments that the Lord Proclaim to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down here, go down from here at once, because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded and have made an idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone. So that I may destroy them and blot out their name under heaven. And I will make you a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hand. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. That you had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two uh, two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. Then once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread, I drank no water because of all the sin you committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing his anger. I feared the anger and the wrath of God for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again the Lord listened to me and the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, but at that time I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took the sinful things of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire, then I crushed it and ground it to powder, as fine as dust, and threw it down into the stream that flowed down to the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Taborah and Massa in Kibroth and Hattavah. And when the Lord sent You out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You had been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. I lay prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance, that you redeemed by your great power. And brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness, and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, because he hated them, he brought them out here to put them to death in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm may be seated as we go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon the study this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Guard me from error and bless your people, Lord, and those that do not know you yet, I pray they would come to know you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' holy name, the name that is above every name. Amen. Deuteronomy 9. 1 through29 is not particularly the best way you would like to be described if you were an Israelite. But there are two points, principles, applications that I believe that we can draw out of this passage for us this morning, and the first comes from verses one through six. It is simply this: All of God's gifts come to you by His grace in Christ. All of God's gifts come to you by His grace in Christ. Consider this passage, specifically verses 1 through 6. In these verses, 1 through 6, Moses addresses this misconception among the Israelites that they were inheriting the promised land because of their own righteousness. The good gifts of God came to the Israelites because of His grace, not their goodness. They were not entering the land or they were not to enter the land, with arrogance and pride regarding their own accomplishments, but instead with gratitude for what God had accomplished among and against their enemies. And speaking of the significance of this verse, one Old Testament scholar, Daniel Block, writes this, with his verdict of stiff-necked, Moses pricks Israel's balloon of inflated self-esteem and sets the stage for his portrayal of the Israelites' fundamentally flawed character. He says, they have nothing to commend themselves to God. They have no physical greatness. They have no power or moral character. In other words, their election, their occupation of the land, and their prosperity within it are all gifts of divine grace granted to them in spite of their lack of merit. They were coming into the land not because they had earned it or because they had deserved it, but because God was gracious. All of God's gifts come to you by His grace. And specifically for uh, those of us that are Christians, it is His grace in Christ. One of the implications of this point is that we should be a humble, self-aware people who recognize our own inclinations to rebellion against God. I appreciated this one theologian in the past several hundred years ago. He was teaching his congregation on Deuteronomy 9, and this was his remark. When we see anyone sin we should first weep over ourselves in their calamity because we have either fallen like them or we can fall. So, in other words, when we look at others in sin, our first inclination ought not to be, I'm so much better than they are. Our first inclination ought to be if it was not for the grace of God, that would be me. Or that was me. So the Israelites were kind of marching into the land thinking, so, good, so glad we're not like you, all you dirty Canaanites. We're walking into this land because we deserve to be here. You don't deserve to be here. That's why God's driving you out. And God says, wow, how crazy. Quickly, you are to forget your past. And so Moses says, let me remind you. (laughs) Let me remind you that from the time I met you, you were stiff-necked people. So, let me ask. This is hard. I have to ask this for myself. When you see someone in sin, is your first thought, Oh, if it were not for the grace of God, I would be just like them. Or is it, oh, thank God I'm not like those people. Jesus spoke of this in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, when he tells the story of the sinner and the Pharisees. And for those of you that maybe have a different translation, if you go to Luke 18, you're going to read the publican and the Pharisee. And just to be sure, it's not republican, it's just publican. Although the shoe might fit. It's the idea of a sinner, somebody was very self-aware of their sinfulness. And the Pharisee goes to pray and he's praying out loud. And as he's praying out loud, he goes, Oh, Lord, I just want to thank you for everything that you've done. And I'm just so glad I'm not like all these other people. Like that poor soul over there. Lord, thank you that I'm not like them. And then Jesus moves and he looks at the public in the center and the center is just beating his chest going, Lord, have mercy upon me. He can barely look up, Lord, have mercy upon me. Who are you in that story? I know who I tend to be. I tend to be the one that when I see the sin in another, I don't immediately think about my own need for grace, but I go, wow, I'm just so glad I'm not like that person. That is rooted in a fundamental misconception of my own desperate need for God's grace. The Pharisee bragged about his righteousness. The the sinner, however, recognized their need for God's grace. Which are you? Do you realize that every good and perfect gift is a gift of grace that is given to you by God that you would not possess if it was not for his goodness? Or do you believe that you've earned it by your own good living? Deuteronomy 9, 1 through 6 teaches us that the proper response is when we lament over our own sin, our own brokenness apart from Christ. We do not sit in self-righteous judgment over others, but in self-reflection over our own desperate need for God's grace in Christ. It's one of the implications of this idea that all good gifts come to you by his grace in Christ. Another implication of these first six verses is that when we encounter feelings of inadequacy in the work that God has called us to, be that in our homes, be that in our schools, in our communities, in our small groups, in our careers, maybe even in our relationships. School starts in eight days for Cypher ISD. For those parents that weren't aware of that, my kids were talking about it as we walked in today. For those of you in other school districts, you may have already started. And there's 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 nothing quite like that feeling of inadequacy, where there's excitement of thinking I'm sending my kids to school. It's the, that inadequacy of a parent, maybe your teacher, your administrator, in the last few years have not been kind to the school district, and it's this feeling of how how do I how do I do another year of that? Let alone another week of that. This is all fixed to start over again. Maybe you sense that God is calling you to work or serve in a particular capacity. Even as we begin doing more things in the context of our church to reach the next generation and to pour into them and make disciples of them. For every step that we take in the direction of of wanting to be more intentional in that discipleship effort, for every step we take, we recognize we have more gaps in terms of the servants and the volunteers that we need. And maybe you sense that God is calling you and stirring you to be a part of something like that, but you feel inadequate. Like, how am I going to go teach Six year olds. They ask hard questions. I just would rather not do that. Or your relationships, your marriage, and your friends. You sense that God is working and moving and calling you into something, and you keep encountering this sense of, I am not enough. One of the things that this passage teaches us that we can rest assured that our adequacy, our ability, our strength is found in God and in his grace. As the Israelites were making their way, while they were proud, Moses reminds them, what? It's not because of you. So he humbles them. But what can happen is as we're humbled is we can we can swing the pendulum to the other side where we're no longer proud, arrogant, and confident. Now we're just have no confidence and faith at all. And so what what Moses reminds them of is not their own adequacy of you just kind of pull yourself up by your own strength, but rather, look, you didn't get in because of your goodness, and you're not going to stay in because of your goodness, but God is faithful. He will be with you. He is going to be the one that drives out your enemies in the promised land. And and principally, one of the things that this teaches us is that the things that God calls us to, he supplies his presence and his power for the blessing of his people. God's blessing does not depend upon us, but upon him and his faithfulness. He will equip us with everything that we need, exactly when we need it, to fully participate in the work that he has called us to, even when... The obstacles seem too great for us. He will be with us just as he has promised to be for his glory and our good. All God's gifts come to you by his grace in Christ. It's the first point, finding in verses one through six. But now what about this extended passage, verses seven through 29? What on earth could we possibly learn from this detailed account of the Israelites' sin. Here's the second principle. If the first principle we learned is that every good gift is a result of God's grace, then the second thing that we learned after this long accounting of the sinfulness of the Israelites is this. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. At this point, i had got to admit, I wish that that was my phrase, but I'm quoting a Puritan by the name of Richard Sibbs. When he reflected upon the sinfulness of humanity and the goodness of God, he could not help but conclude that God must be inexhaustibly rich in mercy and grace. He wrote, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And essentially what verses 7 through 29 are doing is they're reminding the Israelites that whatever claim they are making to their own righteousness, it was a farce. It was fake. There's no way this could be true. How on earth could a people with a history like what you find in verses 7 through 29 act like they had a claim to enter the promised land on the basis of their own righteousness? This is a joke. They were as bad as the nations they were dispossessing, it appears. If they were to enter the land, it would only be because of the grace of God. Thus, Moses reminded the people of their former ways in an effort to magnify the mercy and the grace of God toward them. And similarly, when we think about our former ways, and we ought to, you go, I don't want to be reminded of my former ways. Well, Ephesians chapter 2, two, Ephesians chapter 2, 11. Ephesians chapter 2, 13 and 5, 8 and Colossians one twenty one, reminds the believer, remember the former ways. Remember the way that you lived before you were in Christ. We, when we think about those former ways, ought to recognize that we should not excuse. Excuse that past, nor should we shy away from it, but we should consider them because we have been washed and forgiven of those sins by the blood of Jesus who took our place under the judgment of God. So we do not need to shy away from the reality of our sin. God didn't. Neither should we. Moses doesn't have a problem reminding the people of, of what they had done, but it wasn't to pile upon them guilt. It was to remind them, see how great the grace of God is, that a people that has the past of 7 through 29 still get to enter into a promised land full of the blessing of God. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in You, we do not shy away. When we talk about sin, sin is what we do when we fall in short of the glory of God, which is to say, when we fail to measure up to God's standard, which He has revealed not only in His created order, but also more fully in His Word. Yet God does not intend to leave us in this exposure of our sin. I've mentioned this before but he exposes our sin that he might forgive us and cleanse us of our sin through Jesus. You could almost think almost think of this exposure of of our sins and our failures and our falls like you could almost think of what Moses is doing in verses 79 is like an x-ray or a cat scan or an mri. And and the whole purpose of that type of exposure to radiation is what? Not just to expose you to it. I mean, you don't want a doctor that's like, hey, let's get an x-ray of that arm, come back. That's broken. All right, see ya. And you're like, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, I x-rayed it. What else do you want me to do about it? I, you x-rayed my arm to tell me it was broken so that we could have a plan of attack, that we, we could address this. That's what the MRI, the CT is for. Not just doing it to do it. And so this exposure is not aimed at Going, mm, just look how broken you are. Just going, mm, look at your brokenness, and then come see the great physician who heals all those wounds, who binds up the broken, who heals all our diseases. The exposure serves the purpose of bringing about healing and restoration and redemption, which is what God does through Christ. Our God redeems all who call upon Jesus, the sinless Son who came to be our Savior and our Lord, the one who, like Moses, serves as a mediator between sinful people and a holy God, yet is a better mediator than Moses. We have Christ who goes before us, who conquers the enemy that threatens us, who promises that we will never be left nor forsaken. Christ brings us safely into the presence of God without fear of condemnation. We too are marching on, leading homeward, looking forward to entering into a promised land. And we don't have to fear whether there's going to be an enemy that we have to throw out. Because the king has gone before us. A mediator better than Moses, as Hebrews says, pleading our case before God. Thus, when we are confronted by our sins, our failures, and our brokenness before God, we should not run away from God, but to him, seeing that it is his grace that lets us stand and not be consumed. It is God's mercy that has made a way for you and me. We have no ground for boasting in ourselves. We have no reason to be spiritual braggers. Instead, as Deuteronomy 9 has taught us, let the one who boasts, boast in the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who grants us standing before the Lord, who brings us safely into the promised land, the one in whom there is more mercy than there is sin in us. And so I ask you, what would you boast in this morning? Do not boast in yourself. Boast in the Lord. Would you pray with me? As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equipped for Good. Thanks for listening.